Hey guys, what's up? For this episode, I travel across the pond again with a group of fabulous folks at Decolonize Architecture. Met them on IG, had a couple of conversations, and I was like, would you be interested in coming on my podcast? And they agreed graciously. This was a, a mind-opening conversation for me. I never know where these conversations would lead when I first talk to people. Even when I know them, we, we go on this journey together. Talking to these group of individuals made me realize how tainted my views are and how deep-rooted it is. Talking to people overseas, their perspectives and their experiences are just different. And you know, (laughs) of course they are, right? That makes sense. But when you're in this world, you're in a bubble, essentially. When you were born, you grow up, the people around you, that becomes your life, that becomes your family. You interact with strangers by going to school, by participating in sports. Your worldview widens as you get older, obviously. Or by choice, because sometimes people don't do that. Sometimes people know and stick and, you know. But when I do this comparison, right, my perspective, my view versus specifically the ones that I've talked to that lived in Great Britain, who've traveled, who go to different countries. I noticed how racism and microaggression and misogyny and all these things that come at me tainted my, I I keep saying the word tainted, maybe tainted is not the word. It has granted me the inability to focus I'm hypersensitive when I speak to white men. And I am hypersensitive to what's going on in my environment. And it's it's not, it's prohibiting me from being the architect that I want to be. Because I'm consumed by something else. Talking to these individuals, it made me realize my experiences has ultimately prevented me from being a great architect. And that's difficult for me to say because I think I'm strong, right? I think I can, I'm a superwoman. I, I could take that bullet, but I'm not. And it's it's sobering. It really is sobering. Because I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm editing, I'm listening, I'm going back to the conversation. And I really wish I, well, I mean, you shouldn't regret. I mean, it is what it is, right? I can't go back. I can't change time. I can only move forward and and open my mind and my eyes. And yeah, that's all I can do. I'm looking at my notes and I, I noted the word disease. And I think that I, I caught a disease. I've lost my focus. I don't know if I even had it or maybe I, th- I don't think lost is the appropriate word. I think the appropriate word is clouded, maybe. I think clouded. I think cloud is a better word because I didn't feel like I lost anything. I, I, I didn't gain it. I, n- I never had it in the first place. I, I've been trying to balance, you know, my reality versus the reality that I want. And then, you know, also with this group, one other thing that I really commend them and, you know, a couple of other people that I've 
talked to previously, like Primavera Arc is another example of how alumni gets together and try to make their university better. That they love and enjoy their university so much that as alum, they want to help the students who are currently there and really understand the importance of education, especially in this field. And I commend both of them, as well as the others that I've talked to who go back to their universities and try to make it better. Because I'm like, well, screw that. Like, I'm, I'm bitter at, at, at the last university that I graduated, to be honest with you. And the energy that it would take for me to go back there and try to improve it is, is difficult for me, to be quite honest. And it's my attitude. Like it's, it's, it's that it's part of that disease I was referencing to. It's part of that ill feeling that I, I have that seeded in me a long time ago. I don't want to be that way anymore. Cause it's, it, it really is affecting my architecture. It's affecting my abilities to, to truly be open-minded So that ultimately I could design and just be a better professional, be better in this industry. So I I thank you. Thank Tanya, Mohit, Jasmine, and Harsha. If I mess up your names, I apologize. I'm, I'm really bad with names. And shout out to the other two that couldn't make it that I can't remember your names. But we pay homage to them. Thank you for, thank you all of them for giving me this perspective and helping me actually. You guys really helped me. So I thank you and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Oh, wait, one more thing. Oh, shoot. I forgot. Okay. I got some great news. (laughs) Sorry about that. Yeah. So I received a grant. I got, here's my sound effect of me wailing the paper. So I applied to this grant from the Black and Brown Podcast Collective. I read what they wrote me. So, dear Melissa, uh, first, we'd like to thank you for sharing the experiences of and for Black women through your podcast. And it is with great pleasure to give you this micro grant in a form of a gift in support of your podcast. While we understand that this gift isn't enough to support all of what you do, we hope it can somehow support your podcast. It is our wish that you continue to tell and share the stories and experiences of Black women, and we will continue to work hard to gather as many resources as we can to support as many Black women podcasters as we can so that we can share your podcast and your work with our partners and support. Please ensure that your profile is up on the Black and Brown podcast collective site it will be awesome if you can briefly record yourself saying thank you to the black and brown podcast collective and state the name of your podcast architectural political please send us a copy of your recording until next time so thank you this was a pleasant supplies so once again thank you to the black and brown collective and arcus poly also thanks you Architecture is political. Also, thanks you for this. So I applied for last year. I was a couple of grants. I this small little grants. I think it was 
three, maybe four I applied. This is my very first one. So thank you. And it was great to receive it. And hopefully I'll get more and make this podcast grow. Again, thank you for my supporters, especially those who have donated and continue to support me through Glow. You may ask, Melissa, what do you do with this money? So software, mainly, this is where it goes to. The upfront initial cost of, you know, buying a mic and I had to actually, I took a course, I think. Yeah, I I paid for a course to, to learn more about podcasting. I didn't want to, but I ended up doing it. And I want to be able to do more programming and events and support other podcasters, you know, either giving my time or donating to them. So it's it's a circle, definitely. So this is what I, I do and just be that voice. So again, thank you to Black and Brown Podcast Collective. Thank you for all of the supporters out there who've, who've continued to champion this podcast. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks. I'm going to start off with your names, where you're from, and why the University of Bath. Students first. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tanya Radzlochiganze, or otherwise known as Tanya, and I'm a third year undergraduate at the University of Bath studying architecture. Pronounce your name again. You said it so fast. Tanya Radzlochiganze. So it's a Zimbabwean name. <laughs> Were you born in... Britain? So I was born in Zimbabwe, but I moved here to the UK when I was about six months old, so in 2000. So it's kind of like, in terms of my actual lived experience, I was raised in Wales, but like I still have a strong connection to where I was born through my family and like the culture we have at home. Why architecture? Well, I actually decided it quite late in my school journey. So I decided it about like two years before applying to uni. And I'd always been like creative, design focused, but I also really liked other subjects such as history, writing analytical essays and just understanding the meaning behind things. So at first it started out as architecture being a good mixture of those. But then the more I looked into it, the more I realized it's like, I find it as the art of caring for people and understanding what drives people, what makes people comfortable, and then designing to accommodate that. And that really appealed to me. And then even during my degree, like the more I learn about it, the more I feel like it fits into that. So as soon as I realized that was kind of what it would be to study architecture, I kind of, yeah, it was a definite uh, choice for me. And why the University of Bath? At first, I actually wasn't going to apply. I, I found it like really high up and quite intimidating. Just, yeah. High, high ranking it is but I would say it's definitely an ambitious university and it definitely appealed to be a place where I could learn how to build in the real world build and consider context and know like the practical background to that so the idea of like being trained on placement as well during my studies really appealed to me because it felt like I'd actually quite early on be knowing what it's like to practice as an architect compared to the idea of it being purely theory that's what made Bath stand out to me. My name is Mohit Butch I graduated from the University of Bath over in the summer and I'm currently doing my 
placement my year out in Birmingham, which is central England. It's in the West Midlands. And my background, I was born in India and I moved to the UK when I was six. And I've been here ever since, apart from a three-year stint when I was in Oman in the Middle East. And architecture, for me, I think I realised that going at the start of my A-level, so my final two years at, university, at school, and fine art has been a massive bit part of my life since as long as I can remember. And I've always been very into maths and science. So this felt like a very a perfect fusion of the two. And when I was applying to Bath, I didn't understand it completely. I just knew that it was a very good course. But now in hindsight, I think it's been a very good course because we have engineering modules. We ha It's very, like Tanya said, it, it, it's a lot of real world design, appreciating the, the expressing structure, etc. These and the, the mathematical and environmental principles of architecture as, as well. So that has all been a massive highlight of my last four years. My name is Jasmine, Jasmine Lawrence, and I grew up in Birmingham uh, in the UK. And similar to Mohit, I also graduated from Bath the summer just gone in June 2020. And now I'm back in Birmingham. I just started my master's, so about halfway through that now, which is exciting. So for me, I actually started architecture, or my, my interest in architecture began through a friend. And we were at a careers fair, and she was quite shy when we were younger. This was when we were like 14. And there was an architect there that she really wanted to talk to. So I went along with her just to kind of help her ask him some questions and whatnot. And I remember him showing us this project they'd been working on for a care home in a village. And rather than just designing a standalone building within, uh, it was like this uh, row of terrace houses within a street, it was, um, the building was designed to look like lots of different buildings put together to fit within the kind of context of the street elevation. And I've always been really into puzzles and things which are creative, but quite logical at the same time. And I just remember thinking that it was such a clever and unexpected solution for something which could have been quite simple and could have been quite boring as well. And then since then, yeah, I've just really been fascinated by the kind of impact of architecture from, you know, you can look at things at a really minute scale with one-to-one with -one details, for example, and then you can zoom out all the way to look at the urban impacts, the global impacts, and it really does have a knock-on effect. And I think that's something which I've always been fascinated by. My name is Harsha Guri. As for where I'm from, it's a little bit complex. I was born in India. I grew up in Singapore and in Vienna. And I moved back to India as a kid, but I currently live in Switzerland. That being said, I'm working in India at the moment. So I only went to the UK to study my undergrad degree. I graduated in 2020, same as more than Jasmine. As for me, I guess my interest in architecture kind of started when I moved to India halfway. I was about 12, 13 when I moved here. And it was very evident to me as a kid, like how different living in India was compared to Singapore or compared to Europe. And it kind of always stayed with me that like how the city was built and how my building, like how the building I lived in looked 
affected so much of how I grew up and how my friends viewed what a nice city was or what a comfortable city was. And I think that always kind of stayed with me. But it was only, I think, 11th, 12th grade that I realized that, you know, why this happens could be something I could explore through architecture. And that's kind of how I got there. And for me, Bath was, I guess, the same. The way I saw Bath was, it was quite a technical, quite a practical university. And I thought that that would kind of be the best way I would learn what I'd always thought was very intriguing, even as a kid. What part of India? I live in Pune, so that's Western India in a state called Maharashtra. Is that's where you grew up or did you move around a lot in India? I didn't move around in India. I moved here when I was 12. I was born here um, in Pune. I grew up in Singapore. I was there for about nine years. I was then in Vienna for four and then I moved to Pune. I was here for seven years and then I moved to Switzerland. (laughs) So it's been five years since I've been in Switzerland, but for work, I'm back in Pune. What caused the moves? Well, my dad, actually. (laughs) Like, there's no fun answer, just my dad. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) How did you guys get together? I would say what catalyzed it is in June, like that kind of apex or peak of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I feel like people were more awake to maybe some, the way they'd like architecture to be taught. So at first it was myself and four other second years who were just in a small WhatsApp group chat discussing what they'd like to see in the curriculum and things like that. And then, but there was also a separate group that Jasmine and Laura, Jasmine and Mohit were part of. And I think we became aware of each other and kind of joined forces in that way. Yeah, it was like we had, we were all, we had all finished our final projects and we were all on the, on the cusp of graduating. And our, our uh, cohort in fourth year, we had written an open letter to the department citing like these are the changes that we would like to see. And this is where we would like to work with you in bringing about a change within the the architectural uh, department. And we had put together these action points. And then from that point over the summer, after that open letter, I think Decon has architecture and some of the members of that open letter just fused and here we are. Mm. So how did the pandemic affect everything? Last year was like a tsunami. You had the pandemic and then you had all the protests that was going on here. How did that affect you guys? Well, we were mainly, I mean, I think it was almost a year ago now that we were told by our, we were sent an email by staff saying that studios will now be closed from Wednesday. We were told this on the Monday of that week in March. So everyone packed up. Uh, (laughs) It was a a very, very anticlimactic end. And then we all finished our projects at home. We just cleared out it was a new studio and we just everyone just cleared out in the span of 24 hours and then just continued working from home from that point onwards. I think also in a way well the timing of our formation helped because I guess we'd already had a few months of having to adjust to everything being online and understanding what well just hearing about Zoom for the first time ever and then like learning how to conduct meetings and events through that so 
I think by the time we formed, already having that kind of tech savviness helps quite a bit because everything we've done has been online. I, I don't, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen anyone in our team physically in person before, like ever. <laughs> so that's still yet to happen as being all in the same room. Yeah, so I think, I think it's made me personally a smarter person in terms of like how to organize things just on the screen. Whereas before we would have probably have relied on everyone getting together in a, in a booked place somewhere on campus. But then also I think, especially when the protests were happening, it probably gave like a driving factor in terms of like, you know, wanting, seeing um, everything, especially on social media, that's when the most information was being shared and infographics and, and sources to further articles that like increased knowledge probably drove everyone wanting to contribute, especially with the open letter, which was quite successful. I think we had like 200 signatories. So it was it showed that like people or students around the department as well were also willing and had the same beliefs as we do. I think it's probably worth pointing out when both streams started, uh, the final year open letter and what Tanya had started with Decon as architecture, those few weeks, we, I think we moved at almost like a lightning pace. It, it was yeah. really fast the way uh, in the speed we got things done. And that's also kudos to the department for being very receptive and being quite accepting of the dialogue that we wanted to initiate. And yeah, so in, in that summer, we managed to move things along really fast. Also, the free time helped as well, not having a course to do and things. It amazes me when the racism that's happening here, the police brutality that's happening here is global. How did that affect you personally? With the letter that you wrote, how did the, yes, this is happening to me too. I think for me personally, during those few months following the George Floyd events and all of the BLM riots, it became really quite emotionally draining at times because I feel as though a lot of the kind of underlying uh, racism which exists in the UK is uh, systemic and so it's quite subtle and you can never really up until now it's been quite difficult to almost like pinpoint it um, at certain times and raise it as an issue I think mm-hmm. so for me personally it's something which you know you kind of learn to live with for several years and then all of a sudden it's kind of like out in the open everyone is voicing quite openly that they've had certain experiences or certain issues mm. and you want to almost express that same those same feelings but then to I think especially on social media as well it was always always very present and sometimes it's almost quite difficult to put the lids back on <laughs> I'm not sure how the others felt but yeah sometimes it feels like you've kind of opened up a bottle and it could be quite difficult to kind of control how much almost exposure you have, I guess. Oh, Des, I just want to stay on you for a little bit. Do you have any specific examples that has personally affected you? I think just, again, throughout over the years, it's a lot of very subtle, like microaggressions, I guess. For me, being mixed race, I think it also adds like another level of, I guess, confusion at times, because sometimes you feel as though you don't quite fit with either of your kind of like groups that you 
you know, your, your ethnic groups where, where you're from. And so things like, I've even had friends who I'm quite close to, you know, kind of make remarks or make jokes, for example, about like me being black or whatever, and not quite understanding that I don't identify myself as black because I'm not, I'm 50-50. So I always kind of, you know, argue that I'm just as much white as I am black and that kind of thing. And I think over the years, things like that and little remarks do build up and it does kind of stay with you for a little while. Mm. Yeah, I, I relate to that because when it's so subtle and kind of continuous, it doesn't really feel like it's going to change. And so you kind of get used to managing that. And then all of a sudden, when you see that it is changing, it it's kind of like that movie montage where like all of the experiences just kind of flash and you remember like, or if you see an infographic that relates to you, that kind of can maybe bring back up the emotion. And yeah, you I, and you want to talk about it more, but then you also feel like you're hyper exposed now because but like people who even don't know anything about the black experience and what was being talked about and are really curious and are like listening intently. And it's like, whoa, like, I'm not a professor I'm just saying my own life but at the same time it's I don't yeah it was it was really draining especially when you kind of realize the gravity of the situation how global it is and how much of a task it it, it could be or will be that everyone kind of needs to contribute to in order to address that it feels like I didn't really ask for this like I was literally just born and trying to kind of understand the true nature of things and now there's like this situation so at first it was quite overwhelming yeah I think to what Tanya was saying like especially when people became more aware of the kind of issues that ethnic minorities and people of colour face mm. it's it seems as though these discussions were being brought up all the time and on one hand you're really happy that people want to learn more or want to try and understand. And then on the other hand, it becomes really draining, kind of constantly reliving your experience or recounting it to other people to try and educate them or, yeah, to try and help them kind of understand what it's like. Uh, and like Tanya said, yeah, it's constantly seen infographics and on Instagram, various articles and things like that. And it's reassuring to know that you're experiences are shared but then at the same time again it does become a bit overwhelming at times yeah I also found it quite interesting in the British context as well because when we're a country where like our sense of humor is like bants so sometimes <laughs> there's the distinction well are you taking it too seriously or you know should you just go along with it because that's the way a lot of people relate to each other and things um, and if you're the only one who is actually not finding it very funny, then it's continuing. In a way, you can almost question yourself, to what extent is it funny or should I go along with it? And then also it's a country where our history has been one of the most smothered in terms of acknowledging its past with like the key role it took part in, for example, the slave trade that people are reading up on now and just like the presence of different ethnic minorities that has kind of been there for a really long time it was a sudden switch between absolute denial and now just complete openness so it was a huge not well yeah like a huge culture shock but within the same culture almost. so the uniqueness of the U.S. versus Great Britain in terms of history 
how the U.S. was formed and how we took the cultures of Great Britain and translated here to the U.S. Back in the day when there was a slave trade and the U.S. was a new nation forming, a lot of the cultures of Great Britain, including buildings and like certain ideologies, Mm. minus the queen concept, now centuries later, how it all parallels, but is different. For example, our current political system, we just got a new president. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) when we elected our former president, you have currently a prime minister and how both of them seems to be similar, have similar traits, how you guys were dealing with Brexit and how we were just dealing with deregulations, the everything here, which, you know, spark a lot of the protests. I guess what I'm trying to correlate is how your education perceived the U.S. How was that like? I think we, well, our curriculum would vary school to school. No, I mean, no two schools would teach exactly the same thing. It, it, it yeah. depends. So like education-wise, it may not necessarily be the same. However, in my experience, in all the schools that I've gone to, everyone's more or less always been, to, to some extent, informed of the events going on in America for, for whatever reason it may be. And I think, yeah, in, in 2016, it was a, a very interesting time for us because we were obviously, we, there was so much exposure about the, you know, the whole election cycle and then Donald Trump getting elected and then uh, Brexit got, we, uh, got voted in the same year. Yeah. I think sometimes I, I have found sometimes people make, what's the best way to say this, make, do make jokes about the US over, over like the last four years. Like what Tanya said earlier, that humor is just a very big part of, like, like a dry, sarcastic sense of humor is, is a very big part of, the, of British culture. And I think it's just been, there has been a lot of like self-deprecating humor as well as humor at, at this situation going on either side of the pond, so to speak. In comparison, like what Mohit said, it's interesting to hear like how no two schools are the same curriculum wise like within England because it's also very different in Wales like the way we're made up because we're like England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland all together but we each have very different kind of agendas so with even though there was like a higher kind of concentration towards Welsh history we also learned quite a bit about America and we did have a race relations module so we learned about you know like Malcolm X all of the big names and things in the civil rights movement and it was kind of portrayed as like a terrible country in that module but then through the media and being abroad in America it felt like it presents itself as the greatest country and the most prosperous and kind of very kind of generous to the rest of the world so at at first when you at the beginning of your education you think you know that's where you want to be and that's where there's the greatest opportunity But then when you look into it more, you can also see some of the inequalities, the level of capitalism that doesn't benefit everyone. So, but in terms of kind of what we're about as a group, 
curriculum wise when we were learning the race relations module our teacher and just the environment was very much like it's only happening in America like America is just this hotbed for hostility whereas in Britain we're we're a lot more pleasant we're not nicer like we get along and there's never been an issue here because there have never been any actual discriminatory laws especially not in modern history but it's sneaky because there were no actual laws but there were no laws preventing it so even though there was no like legal segregation in comparison to what we learned by in America there up until the 80s there wasn't any race relations act so for example, like white landlords could easily reject black families, which they did until that act happened. So it was like, it's always been a lot more subtle. Whereas with America, it's very much like in your face. Um, like, well, like everything is just like a lot louder. <laughs> <laughs> Racism as a topic itself among students, even if we weren't taught, I, I mean, I've always been part uh, in schools with a very diverse student population. so. There was there was acknowledgement that racism exists here. Like no one was thinking that. Like like Tanya said, although it was education, sometimes did vilify America a bit more. But I think one of the 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 other things that students here used to give stick um to America for was it wasn't necessarily race issues. It was things like gun laws, etc. Mm-hmm. Those were what people I've come across fail to understand. And it, it's not, yeah, the, the race uh, issues have, I feel among students, have they've understood that it, this is a, a prevalent issue here as well. Remind me again, your police doesn't carry any weapons. They just carry sticks, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Police, but they have to be called specifically though. Mm. Like the police officers rolling, they will have the, the, the a small-ish nightstick, like a foot big handcuffs and mm. they all wear stab proof vests mm. but w- w- no they don't carry guns i think that's quite good because i find it increases sensitivity to even just the sight of a gun because we're not used to that kind of threat or suggestion of violence and so it doesn't feel like it really fits whenever you see policemen with guns even in like high profile situations compared to when i visited america and it was literally just like a burger bar and the policeman had a gun. I was like, what? Like, why? Why? So it just makes you think, what's the need for it to be there? And yeah, I think in comparison overall, yeah, I don't know. I think that is one of the biggest criticisms the UK has over America is the kind of use of or threat of violence and, and we kind of question that a lot. How does that work with because I, I, I hear, not here, but I've seen like your queen goes hunting and she drives a car. Do you need a permit for that or how does that part work? Just That's like hypocrisy, I guess. Yeah. I'm not sure how it works. I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. You need a, you need a, I mean, we cannot go out and buy firearms. Like they, they're not, they're not sold openly. Mm. Uh, it, 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 they are. I mean, you are allowed to have firearms for hunting purposes, but I'm pretty sure you need to have a permit for that. And it is not, they are not very common in households. Mm. I think, yeah. I mean, one criticism of the UK can be that we have knife crime. Knife crime, especially in London, is really bad. But personally, I feel out of the two, 
if you were put in a situation, would you rather take your chance with a knife than a gun? Then I, I would say a knife. Mm-hmm. I think it's a definitely a lot harder to get hold of a gun here. Like for me personally, I wouldn't even know where to begin other than Googling it, which would probably draw up some red flags. Whereas I'm not sure whether in America, if you have like gun stores or like gun shows and things like that, whereas here it's, yeah, like practically impossible for just anyone to just go out and buy one, really. Yeah, here it varies by state and it can also vary by county. So in Maryland, for example, the further out of a metropolitan city, the easier it is and more common it is to get a gun versus like DC, DC ban. There's no, you're not allowed to have a gun unless you have a special permit. Virginia in itself is a happy gun toting state. (laughs) Another thing too, I wanna bring up is, I'm gonna call it ethnic cleansing with white supremacy and how you have a surge because of the former president. And I wanna do a parallel comparison where there it seems that it's more of an ethnic type of reasoning where you know you don't belong here because you migrated here mm-hmm. versus here. It is based on the color of your skin, but it doesn't matter how you migrated here is that the whites were here first, even though technically they weren't here first. It was kind of, it makes no sense. But I thought that's an interesting parallel and and maybe the birth of Brexit for you guys. How did that affect going to school or even in your day-to-day? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I I moved here, I had joined in year two. So yeah, second grade, and it was for those first few years. It was that that was the only time I've not like uh, what we were talking about earlier. In the recent years, my experience with racism has, has been a lot more unconscious bias and the subtle things. But however, when I first moved here, in those first few years, it was very outright. It was because I had an Indian accent. My I, I did not have this accent when I moved here. And yeah, the racism back then was very outright in school. And weirdly so, it was often by British Indians. So, so students of Indian origin, but they had been born and raised here. Mm-hmm. So that was always very confusing to me. But yeah, it was, I mean, the, the one term that I really hate, because I, I was called this for, it's a term called freshie. Right, which is the equivalent of fresh off the boat. That's basically what it is. And yeah, I was called out for this majority of my time in primary school. And then now looking back on it, it's very hard to understand. It's like, in my opinion, if, if, there, if there's someone who can, like, for example, speak multiple languages, has experience of multiple cultures, I, I think that's an inherent advantage. So I, I don't understand when people vilify that, that kind of an experience. And back then, how we had Nigel Farage over the last few years and the, the UKIP movement that he'd been leading back then, it was EDL, which is the English Defence League. Mm-hmm. And they were also like very violent. No, I mean, not violent, but like they were very 
that could be violent and anti-immigrant uh, protests going down your going down in the city and you were told like don't go out today there's an edl march today etc yeah yeah i think over time we've had yeah it's we've always had that strain of far right groups like before edl it was the bnp as well head, led by nick griffin and his main thing was you can be you know you can immigrate here but you'll never be british even if you're born here you'll never be british and yeah, the, the, I would say the most, the one that's largest in the British memory is the is UKIP. And especially when it came to forming Brexit, one of the most kind of influential campaigns they had was this large poster that they kind of plastered on all the billboards. And it was just this long, thick line of obviously people with brown skin, like obviously people coming from what he was suggesting, like the Middle East, North Africa, and saying something like, they're coming do you want this kind of thing so clearly raising like an just an assessment of anything that isn't white and suggesting that that is what is ruining the current economy that's what's causing recession rather than it being more money just being kind of siphoned to the elite so it was that whole kind of divide and rule kind of tactic and that it's it's odd because that's going on in the real world but then when you have your own experience in education it's for me, it felt kind of separated. So in Wales, there isn't as much diversity. So I did go to schools where it was quite homogenous. And it's like a really, anyone will tell you, it's a really kind of open, friendly country. So people genuinely are very welcoming. But at the same time, it's like, I think William Dubois said something like double consciousness. So it's like two sets of minds, but still they'll also say really kind of ignorant, harmful things because they just it can be sometimes a lack of education so it's kind of like when we learned about the slave trade I don't know if anyone else experienced it if they would mention the uh, subject being someone who's black or of African origin you just feel all eyes on you because you're the black one so you must know too relate and it's a way of people showing they're kind of aware of race because you're picked out but that's as far as it goes you don't actually understand where that comes from and I think in terms of just the consciousness of Britain aware of where we came from that hadn't really it didn't really have a story until recently because it wasn't being told so anyone not just the black population but like anyone of any background didn't really know how we came together and so we were just it, for me, it kind of felt like we were just placed, just floating and dealing with day to day without really knowing the context of why we're here or how this is happening, how globalization has led to such a diverse population. So that can kind of impact your own identity, I think, because for me, I found, well, if this isn't really, if there's not much information, you just got to decide for yourself how you're going to think of yourself and what parts of your culture you want to embrace. Even just five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there's been such a change because at first I felt there was this eagerness to assimilate and um, be like everyone else, whereas now it's more popular to kind of be your own person. And it's like people really appreciate having a culture from their family that they can say, this is where I come from, but I'm also British because I'm, I've literally, you know, been raised there. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a situation where there's so many different experiences and ways people can approach their own their own view of themselves. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the 
experiences I had, I'm not sure if uh, basically it was just basically I saw this graph, which it was like an infographic that someone had made, and I found I could relate to it quite uh, quite clearly. It was that uh, on the x-axis was time, and on the y-axis was appreciation of your own home culture. And when you move, uh, when you emigrate to a country, your your uh, appreciation of your home culture is very high. You that's all you've known for a while and then as you spend time in that country it goes down and then because I experienced it wanting to fit in quote unquote and then you try and distance yourself from where you came the food you take to school etc you, you try and distance <laughs> yourself from that and um, because that I was in an environment and other people would have been in an environment where people are not accepting of that and then after a while then as you grow old and you understand you become more mature you realize it was like why have I been doing this for the last few years and then, yeah, so in the last, what, uh, what se- seven odd, seven, eight years, I've personally kind of seen that, that appreciation go up and almost higher than what it started off as. Because, and I have actively tried to, in architecture school, I've tried to focus on India and looking at India through the pro- uh, lens of architecture mm. and almost it, as opposed to divorcing myself from it, almost exploiting it and seeing like how can I really have the, the best of all the experience the advantages that have been afforded to me because I personally see like if you're able to move to another country I see that as an advantage. Harsha uh, you've been through a lot of places how did you hold on to your identity like how did that affect you going to school? I think a large part of it is definitely I agree with what Moet said with there being phases of you kind of appreciating this one part of yourself and then there come days where you're just like oh god I wish this wasn't me but (laughs) I think personally at the end of the day for me I've started feeling a little bit I've kind of started disassociating with having to have a certain set of okay this is where I come from this is kind of you know this is what my family looks like this is the culture that I appreciate because for me that's never existed it's uh, this is a completely personal opinion but having kind of for me I haven't moved around so much like by the time you get comfortable with one thing you've kind of had to like forcibly remove yourself from that comfort and then kind of start from scratch and then it's very easy as a kid to just give up you kind of at one point you're just like okay you know what I don't know how many more times this is going to happen I should just might as well just stop trying with having to define who you are and then unfortunately what happens with that is at least for me people start defining you instead so I'd always I'd always be the outsider kid or she's just come from I don't know like wherever she'd been and I moved back to India quite late in my life so unfortunately I didn't speak my mother tongue until quite late and then it obviously it doesn't help because then you can't even say oh yeah I'm Indian because I don't speak the language either so I don't know I guess at one point you try and stop letting your race define you but the harm with that is it gives people an opportunity to define it for themselves so I kind of even today I kind of don't know how to navigate that difference 
how does that translate through architecture and your in the profession and how you study and how you design? How does that translate into what you do? I think for me, it was always kind of like giving a permanent form to whatever this identity crisis was. For me, architecture was always let me try and make a space where people, me, could figure out what they felt they best belonged to. And it's always, right, you move to a different country. I'm Hindu. And then I'm not a devout religious person, but seeing a temple is always going to make me feel all right. You know, people here are okay with me being myself. So for me, architecture is always just, it's always just been that. It's being able to design and actually properly, physically, permanently represent parts like small small segments of people's culture just so that they feel like they're allowed to belong somewhere mm. so that's always what it's been for me at least like just being able to design spaces so that people know that it's okay to want to relate to that space because it's been designed with them in mind decolonize architecture how did that name come about so before we formed two groups, the name was the name of our second year group. And I guess we just wanted it to be simple and to the point and just explain what we're aiming to do. And it came about, well, as, as seeing it as the way, as the solution to the problem in a really simple way, because what we're aiming to do is reverse uh, the process architecture has gone through of it being very exclusive and a result of not just the physical colonialism, but I would say educational, of only of the posts in education, of being teachers, being available to a select few middle class, usually white men. And so it's kind of just wanting to really simply explain that we're trying to balance out power inequalities that we have currently within architecture and in multiple ways. That's interesting because when I saw Decolonize Architecture IG page, Mm -hmm. I got super excited. And my interpretation of that was to get away from colonialism here. And what Trump was doing, like he, he performed an executive order to have all federal buildings to look a certain way, to look colonial. That in itself was a representation of the plantation owner and how it translates back to British style architecture mm. and how that kind of laid the foundation over here to eventually like to white supremacy. So I, I, all these things were going in my mind as I saw this brand new IG account. I don't know if that was the intent that you guys had, but for me anyway, it was just a a sample of uh, colonial power, the colonial institution, enslavement, colonial institution of white white supremacy. Hmm. Over the the last, yeah, over the last six months, whenever we've been talking, I think our our approach has never been focused on the way we have interpreted decolonize is a tackling all the all the, the 
different facets of bias and racism that uh, exists within the industry. Decolonizing has, like colonialism has been a part of it. However, we have not focused uh, uh, just on that. For example, we recently put out a it was we recently had posted about how buildings can how architecture can help democracy and one of the things that we that we've all been taught at school is that you know design for your time design back then good or bad the, the buildings that were designed 400 500 however many years ago they were a representation of their time and they, so yeah they, they will be they will be so trying to copy them for today's environment, it, it is not. It can not be representative of what the culture, what the, what thoughts and ideas are today. So you should, instead of trying to what would they call pastiche, instead of trying to rip off what someone, you know, those the the different, the Ionic Doric orders, instead of trying to copy them today, that you can interpret those to make something representative of our time. And I feel that's so that was one of the things we mentioned, like how by by staying true to what we have got in today's society, we can architecture can, like you mentioned, it cannot help stop alienating people, uh, which could happen when you put up when you design pastiche buildings that are representative of time where there was slavery, where there was segregation or oppression, or more so. Mm-hmm. I think what's really kind of important about our group and our aims is that we, when we set out our action points document with um, essentially laying out our agenda, we divided the aims up into like time frame and scale. So things that could be achieved immediately, which uh, were of a smaller scale, for example, providing the University of Bath with guidelines about um, avoiding subconscious bias in reviews for students and then like longer term goals as well so things like challenging the Royal Institute of British Architects who set up the regulations for architectural education and things like that and I think by doing this it's almost like a step-by-step process to achieving that decolonizing goal so even when we're working on the smaller targets which are just within the institution like changes to the curriculum, for example, to enhance a more global perspective of architecture rather than the very Eurocentric education that we've had. It then, by doing that, it will impact students who are there now, future students, people just entering architecture education. And when they leave, hopefully, it means that by having more of a global view, that our future buildings will be as Rohit said, more appropriate to our time and people will have that greater understanding that isn't just Eurocentric driven or just copying examples from the past. Mm. I think hopefully (laughs) that's what architecture means to me at least. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And going off of that as well, specifically at Bath, we have such a huge international student population and kind of what Jasmine said about a wider global format of education would help because especially for people who would like a UK education but would also like to learn about architecture overall and practice in other countries, avoiding the pastiche would help people to design 
for their time, but as well as their place and avoid kind of continuing like neo-colonial buildings that you see in former colony countries and kind of appreciating perhaps where the origin of like the indigenous architecture came from and but actually having like the practical knowledge to to build into that and so yeah personally I do agree like it's overall just to achieve a, a holistic experience in architecture school for all students and just innate so that it's a format that people can adapt to themselves and also have the resources if they want to do something different for perhaps history and theory or design studio be able to do that rather than <laughs> feeling like they don't have the resources or the tutor perhaps doesn't know about what they're trying to write and if that narrative isn't present or known about in the first place they, they might not have the confidence to know that they're going to be marked very highly because it's not even on the curriculum so we feel like this is something that should be adapting to the times and overall just trying to connect institutions with the wider context so that they so that when people actually graduate they're able to feel more prepared for what the working world would be in UK as well as outside of that. Following your post you're not just what I've just mentioned you talk about the school in itself and you did a call to action with the letter and the in inclusive crits is another example that you guys have talked about so mm -hmm. it's not just my own perspective um, I just want to put that out there that you guys aren't just focusing on that but it's just the broadest sense of POCs and how these little microaggressions mm -hmm. affect everything mm -hmm. uh, so I just want to put that out there that is my own interpretation of when I first saw it and how it is grown to be more than what I first interpreted as mm. go ahead uh, uh, no I was just going to say that one thing that we've tried to maintain over the last few months is that we want to be a very solution driven group as yeah. opposed to like this was never it's or at least maybe at the start, possibly, but since then, we have not focused on spreading awareness because it, it is a lot of these, a lot of the issues, they are to some degree, they're already known. I mean, awareness will always help, but what we've tried to like, how can we, how can we get out of this? You can, you, we can, we can point at, okay, this issue exists, X, Y, Z exists. But then what we've actively tried to do is work with the people who can make a change, in this case, yeah. the department, and then in the, in the future, hopefully, with other organizations. And yeah, basically, actually implementing practical change. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's always been a very solution-driven approach. Yeah, I find that I agree with that because what, what's important about us being a group as well is there like it's important to say there have been so many efforts by other students in the past to kind of address this and reports but because by the time you feel confident to actually challenge what you're learning you're usually like in fourth year and then you graduate and you you're committed to a different company and the effort is kind of left and so by it being a group of both students and alumni we're there to just kind of see it through the action points as well as what Mohit said, we like to have solutions as well as mentioning what the problem is so that we can, so that something's actually done. And it's not just like a brief memory in the department. And 
I completely forgot what I was going to say. Uh, oh, yeah. But like if you like with our logo, it is the D, the A part is uh, Colston statue being pulled down. So it's kind of what we're trying to do is kind of not just within the specific confines of discussing colonialism, but it stems from, I guess, history. So everything we're trying to tackle now, like microaggressions, the way that education is, has come from somewhere and and it's come from I would say like the institution and episteme of architecture being a certain way and and trying to change that and then it's kind of a learning process I think because the more we look into it the more we realize there are so many different aspects to it that can feel very far from colonialism but like there are all of these links that come up when you discuss with different people, different groups in the uni as well as outside of it. So it does feel like a multifaceted kind of process that requires a lot of, I would say collaboration, but yeah. So as a group, it's definitely seen, I would say a lot more progress than, than if maybe one person were to try and do it by themselves. What's next for decolonized architecture? What's what's on the horizon? We've got a lot of things in the pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> have really been accelerating recently from just before Christmas, actually. So we're currently collaborating with the widening access and participation team at Bath to deliver some architecture-specific outreach programs to people from less advantaged backgrounds across the UK, which is really exciting. And we have another open forum coming up with the architecture department at Bath, which is essentially like an open staff student. It will be like a Zoom event where we can discuss our goals and and the progress we've made and what's kind of lying in the future that we're aiming towards and also get feedback from both staff and students with any suggestions that they might have or if any of them wish to contribute in any way, which we did actually when we first started the group back in July. And it was a really productive event and I think really informative for a lot of people. And we received a lot of really positive feedback from the staff as well. Yeah, just got a lot of things lined up, I think. Yeah, we also have... Well, maybe Harsha would be better explaining it, but we have quite a good relationship with the library for the past yeah half year, who's been collecting a lot of resources, putting them together so people can educate themselves more on how race relates to architecture and culture. And Harsha, do you want to say something? Yeah, actually, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've been quite lucky that the department has been so open with kind of taking these things on board as well, which has a lot to do with how kind of fast we've grown. So we have, we've kind of been working with the library to diversify our curriculum reading list, kind of working with our department librarian as to see what kind of books are um, kind of recommended before you start CR history and theory courses at Bath, at least the last few years, you get to kind of decide how you want to take your history essays and you get to have like, you have a free reign on what you kind of want to see and research. So what we're doing with the library is that just kind of diversifying the kind of books and case studies that you can read up on and thus hopefully kind of widening the sort of topics that students would choose to research. Like 
some of us personally did it in our fourth year where we kind of really looked at things that were personal to us and put like an architectural lens on them and what we want to do is facilitate that for the rest of the student body as well so you if you've got the library support we're hoping to see like a larger number of more diverse projects or essays so we've got like tanya said a very good working relationship with library and i think while while we undertake all of these different like the inclusive review the action points whatever we talk about with the staff what we what we always strive to do is make that accessible to the general public so what we do is we take whatever progress we might have made and all those documents that we've created we distill it down and then we constantly put them on our social media feed so that people who weren't there in that meeting people around the world can take a look at the the the, the, the structure the skeleton of what it is that we put together and then they can have a starting point to maybe implementing that in whatever institution they might be at. So yeah, we, it's not about almost like it, we want to keep it just at Bath and we'll take control of this. It's almost like here, it's it's like open sourcing. Like we will, we will create this now. This is yours to use as well. Have you guys ever, it's called faculty here, but I think you call it tutors there. The diversity amongst the professors, I guess, have have that also been a part of your agenda? Or are they already a diverse staff? I would say no, they're not diverse yet. I, I think it is, yeah, it's one of our action points to diversify backgrounds as well as expertise of our tutors and our lecturers, because we find sometimes there can be a particular bath style or an echo chamber and some students want to you know or there's just I feel like there's a need to have an environment where people can flourish into their own individual styles as much as possible and that is reflected on who's teaching us and who's able to give us information in our our weekly tutorials which are one-on-one as well as our lectures and so we're trying to kind of look into how like the hiring process is as we go on like in the future that would be I would say one of our important points so that we can, I think that's a good way to kind of from the top down address the way we're taught. And I feel like the best way to do that is by just talking to the heads of years and seeing how we may be able to work with kind of more like the networks that are already there for that, like paradigm and things like that. So just trying to reach out to people who provide diverse kind of professionals who actually are able to talk about for example a different kind of culture of architecture because they're actually experts in it or because they're actually from there rather than it being someone who has a little bit of knowledge and it's just there for like an extra lecture or something so I feel like yeah that's a big when I first joined Bath that was kind of a big visual sign of the culture just the student cohort as well as staff not representing the wider society that I'm used to, even from Wales, where it's not as diverse, there was still slightly less variety in Bath. And so sometimes that can be put down to like the wider population being like 94% white, for example, but I don't think, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there's more to look into it than just that, than just saying that is a conclusion. Whereas because we're 
serving like the wider student population that with students that come from all over the UK as well as further than that. So yeah, I see that as a big need personally. Where can people find besides IG? I've been saying IG all along, but um, any other social media or do you have a website at all? No, but we were discussing that to be a future thing. Yeah, we do have Facebook. It's called Decolonize Arc Bath. And we also have Twitter, which I think is just Decolonize Arch. So yeah, we have Instagram, I think has been receiving the most um, attention, but we also kind of post more uh, text-based posts on Facebook and Twitter. And um, LinkedIn well. um, Oh yeah, LinkedIn. Yeah. And LinkedIn is, yeah, we mainly use that for, yeah, like the, the, the text-based uh, documents, etc. However, yeah, Instagram is currently decolonized architecture. Any last words? Just thank you for yeah. having us. It's <laughs> been a lovely chat. <laughs> I do, but they're quite big. I was wondering, how did you come to start your podcast, Architecture is Political? Oh, long story short, I, I grew up in, I think you would call it, it I'm trying to translate it, but I'm not going to translate it. I think you guys will figure it out. I grew up in the projects and I, that's the reason why I wanted to become an architect is that I felt like no one should live in the conditions that I lived in. And going through architecture school was extremely difficult for me. It was a culture shock to say the least. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand anything. My family's from Trinidad, Caribbean. And so it was that culture. And then living in DC is like chocolate city. So when you show slides of Notre Dame or the other old school architecture buildings, I was just like, I don't know. I I can't relate to this. I have no idea what this is. Mm. It was extremely difficult going into practice and stuff and trying to get licensed. It was difficult because I, I don't, I don't get it. I can, you know, do contract documents all day, design, whatever you tell me to design, not really knowing my own design voice. And I started investigating where I lived and talked to other people. I, I realized that there's a lot of people who, a lot of students, a lot of professionals who never seen a black female architect. That was shocking to me, but that's my own bubble. And then internationally, I've learned talking to you guys over there, that architecture is different. The education is extremely different. And if I you know, was in Great Britain, I could hop on a train and see Notre Dame versus hopping, spending two, $3,000 US to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to see it for myself. It's, and then internationally too, I, there, there's not much international students studying architecture here. Unless you go to an Ivy League school, and even still, that's still kind of limited. But, you know, it, it's, it's all that that progressed with the podcast. And, yeah, that's why I started it. Do you have to study it? Do you study at grad school? Or because, like, for example, here, we start, we start studying architecture as it is straight from, like, day one at university. So when we were, what, like, 18? But would you start it at, at when you used to go to college or would you start it at grad school? It's called, so it works here. We do grades. Like, mm-hmm. so your secondary will be our high school. 
the curriculum, you get a bachelor's of architecture or a bachelor of science major in architecture, and that's four years. So, you know, the first two years is foundation, sketching, model making, all that good stuff. And depending on the curriculum of the university, it, it really varies after the two-year mark, whether you go for five years, which you get your bachelor's of architecture or your four years, which you get a bachelor of science in architecture. And then if you get the four year and you want to continue on, that's when you go and get your master's and get, and that's the extra three years. Or if you choose to get your master's after your five year, then it's like an extra year, maybe two years, depending on the school. So you're looking at seven, five to seven years of education. In between that, you're not required to do practice like how you guys have it. It's either after you graduate or find an internship during the summer or something, but it's not required per se, depending on the university. Some universities require that. Some universities, like it's, you can you, you can do whatever you want during the summer. Yeah, here in, in our our qualification pathway, you can start your, I think you, you need one year of experience after each, it's split into three stages. You've got part one, which is your undergrad, part two, which is your postgrad. And then you have to sit a part three exam after studying for about, I think a year. And yeah, you need to have one year in practice before starting each one. Like that was the good thing about Bath was that in our second and third year, it's split into two semesters and the second semester we have to do in placement. So our whole course is four years long, but by the time we finish, you could have had, I think maximum, if you work for the entire entirety of the semester, you could have had 16 months of experience as soon as you graduate. And then, so then you can get, go straight into your master's and from that point onwards. Has it been difficult finding a job? Um, I would say the pandemic last year made it quite difficult because firms didn't really know what to do but most recently, as a third year, so our structure in Bath is like we integrate the placement. We kind of, I think a lot of people were eager to start applying a lot earlier and stuff. So, and especially, I guess, having the University of Bath name might help as well. So for me, it's been in the middle. I would say it's been like a, a moderate level of difficulty, whereas last year it was quite hard. Yeah, it's been both years. It's been it's been completely different. Like for example, in my second year placement, it took we finished at the end of January, and it took me till May to find a placement. And my third year one, I was in placement in the, in two weeks. So mm. it it is very it's yeah. There's no set. Mm. You will have to wait this long. Some people start the the next Monday, and yeah. So it, it can vary a lot. Yeah. Jasmine, how about you? I've been quite fortunate this year because I've just started my master's, so I haven't had to <laughs> apply yeah. to any jobs. But yeah, funnily enough, me and Mohit were in the same um, cohort at university, but I actually found that it was easier in second year to get a job than third year. But again, I think that's just um, look of the draw, really. But I think partially it might be because uh, in second year, my placement was in Birmingham, and I did know the firm quite well. I did like work experience there when I was like 16, uh, and I managed to get a job, I think, within a couple of weeks of like applying. But then in third year, I was trying to get a job in London for my placement uh, with like no prior contacts or anything 
kind of in that area in the industry. And I think I sent out maybe over 30 applications, visited maybe between six and 10 firms like in person to hand in my portfolio kind of by hand. And yeah, I, out of all of those applications, I only had two interviews and then obviously got one job out of that. So it definitely, I think it depends on the area where you're applying as well and kind of whether you have any connections and how competitive it is. Yeah, definitely it does. It really varies by demand and how yeah. much work the firm's got. Like there were, there was one of my other colleagues from my year was, is also from the Birmingham area. And I had applied to one firm Funnily, funnily enough, the firm I'm at right now, and I, I was unsuccessful, but then they got a placement there three weeks later because I think it's just because it is because when I'd applied, they weren't they weren't hiring. However, a position opened up soon after this, so it really varies by how much work a firm may be having. So it's uh, yeah, like I said, it's never a fixed. You're guaranteed a job, or you're not guaranteed a job. It's a very yeah. I think that's true actually because in third year initially I was going to work back at the same place as my second year for like half of my placement and then I wanted to go abroad which didn't end up happening but actually when I contacted the place that I'd been at before and I still remain in good contact with them now so I do know them quite well but they just kind of turned around and said we literally just don't have any work for you that you could do and this is like one of the bigger firms in the UK as well it wasn't a small practice so like my head said, it really does depend on, I guess, like the projects and stuff that they're working on, which does fluctuate, I think. And there's two more of you guys, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Want to give them a shout out? Yeah, shout out to Charlie. <laughs> and, and to Laura. Laura. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys, you guys been, you guys been brilliant. Is that what you say? Thank you for having us. And you. Thank you so much. Hey, listeners. I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating this show, and it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week. But it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I want to keep the show going and I want to invest in its growth. And I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespolly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.